The House and Senate both return today and both will stay in session through Thursday. Last week on the House floor, the House returned on Tuesday, July 10, and took up and passed two bills under suspension of the rules. On Wednesday, the House passed H.R. 200, the Strengthening Fishing Communities and Increasing Flexibility in Fisheries Management Act. On Thursday, the House took up and passed H.R. 3281, the Reclamation Title Transfer and Non-Federal Infrastructure Incentivization Act. Later Thursday, by a vote of 363 to 54, the House passed H.R. 6237, the Matthew Young Pollard Intelligence Authorization Act for fiscal years 2018 and 2019. On Friday, the House took up and passed H.R. 50, the Unfunded Mandates Information and Transparency Act. The vote in favor was 230 to 168, and then they were done. This week on the House floor, they'll return today with the first vote set for 6.30 p.m. At that time, the House is scheduled to attempt to take up no fewer than 24 bills on the suspension calendar. On Tuesday, the House is scheduled to take up another 14 bills under suspension of the rules. On Wednesday, the House will likely take up H.R. 6147, the Department of the Interior, Environment and Related Agencies Appropriations Act for fiscal year 2019. The House will also take up H. Con Res 119, expressing the sense of the Congress that a carbon tax would be detrimental to the U.S. economy and a motion to go to conference on H.R. 2, the Farm Bill, and then they'll be done. Last week on the Senate floor, the Senate returned to work last Monday and immediately moved to invoke cloture on the nomination of Mark Jeremy Bennett to be a U.S. Circuit Judge for the Ninth Circuit. The following day, the Senate voted by 72 to 27 to confirm Bennett to that position on the Ninth Circuit. Later Tuesday, the Senate voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of Brian Benchowski to be Assistant Attorney General. Then the Senate returned to consideration of H.R. 5515, the Department of Defense Authorization Bill for FY 2019. On Wednesday, the Senate moved to consideration of H.R. 5895, the three-bill minibus appropriations bill. The Senate considered and passed by overwhelming margins two separate motions to instruct conferees on the conference negotiations over the minibus bill. Then the Senate returned to the nomination of Brian Benchowski to be Assistant Attorney General and voted by 51 to 48 to confirm him. Later on Wednesday, the Senate voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of Paul Ney to be general counsel of the Department of Defense. And then on Thursday, the Senate voted to confirm Ney to that position by a vote of 70 to 23. And then it was 1.30 p.m. on Thursday afternoon, and that's a full week for the Senate, so they were done. This week on the Senate floor, they'll return tonight. We'll resume consideration of the nomination of Scott Stump to be assistant secretary for career, technical, and adult education at the Department of Education. At 5.30 p.m., the Senate will vote on his confirmation to that position. Later this week, the Senate will consider the nominations of Randall Quarles to be a member of the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System for a term of 14 years, Andrew Oldham to be a U.S. Circuit Judge for the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, and Ryan Bounds to be a U.S. Circuit Judge for the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. On the FBI front, FBI agent Peter Strzok testified Thursday for nine hours before the Judiciary and Oversight and Government Reform Committees, and boy, oh boy, was it a show. Strzok appeared belligerent and angry, at least for the portions of the hearing that I witnessed. He was not humble or contrite, in fact, the exact opposite, and seemed to be angry that he had even been called to testify, as if the thousands upon thousands of text messages he had sent his FBI lawyer lover warranted no further explanation. On multiple occasions, Strzok refused to answer questions, claiming that FBI lawyers had instructed him not to. In this sense, his appearance was another instance of FBI stonewalling of Congress, legitimate oversight function. Perhaps the most significant exchange of the day came when U.S. Representative Louis Gohmert questioned Strzok, 
And no, I'm not talking about Gomert raising the subject of Strzok's infidelity. That's a standard prosecuting attorney's attack on a witness's credibility that is common in every courtroom in the country, and one which, given Congressman Gomert's previous professional experience as a judge, I'm sure he had seen in his courtroom on multiple occasions. Now, I'm talking about a different exchange. Conservative HQ summarized it this way, quote, what Mr. Gomert revealed is that the intelligence community inspector general, that's the ICIG, and his investigator reported to the FBI, and more specifically Peter Strzok, that the metadata from Hillary Clinton's email provided to the ICIG and the FBI for investigation showed that over 30,000 of Clinton's emails were forwarded to the email of an unknown hostile foreign entity, not Russia, in real time. Our friend Luke Rosiak of the Daily Caller unpacked Representative Gomert's revelation further, pointing out that the ICIG found, quote, an anomaly on Hillary Clinton's emails going through her private server. And when they had done the forensic analysis, they found that her emails, every single one except four, over 30,000, were going to an address that was not on the distribution list, end quote. It was going to an unauthorized source that was a foreign entity unrelated to Russia, Gomert added. Rosiak further reported that Gomert said the ICIG investigator, Frank Rucker, presented the findings to Strzok, but that the FBI official did not do anything with the information. Strzok acknowledged meeting with Rucker, but said he did not recall the specific content. Quote, the forensic examination was done by the ICIG, and they can document that, Gomert said, further charging Strzok, quote, you were given that information and you did nothing with it. Gomert also said that someone alerted the Department of Justice Inspector General Michael Horowitz to the issue. Quote, Mr. Horowitz got a call four times from someone wanting to brief him about this, and he never returned the call, end quote, Gomert said, according to Rosiak's reporting. On Friday, Strzok's former lover, former FBI lawyer Lisa Page, testified behind closed doors before the same two committees. Though she no longer works for the FBI, she had FBI lawyers present with her, telling her what questions she could answer and what questions she could not. So, again, the FBI is still stonewalling Congress. Not surprisingly, many House conservatives are still not satisfied with the responsiveness of the Department of Justice and the FBI to their informational requests. Politico reported that they're circulating a draft resolution impeaching Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, and it could be introduced as early as this week. On the Iran front, NBC News reported Saturday that the Trump administration has rejected an appeal from Great Britain, France, and Germany to allow broad sanctions waivers to European firms doing business in Iran, insisting instead that it would move ahead with full sanctions intended to exert what it called unprecedented economic pressure on Tehran. Five weeks after receiving a letter from the three European governments, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and Secretary of the Treasury Steven Mnuchin wrote back explaining that the Trump administration would not agree to broad sanctions waivers and instead would grant only limited exceptions based on humanitarian or national security grounds. The sanctions are set to go into effect in two big waves, the first in August, the second in November, but they're already having their desired effect, as many European businesses withdraw from doing business with Iran, fearful of losing access to the much larger American market or losing their ability to conduct their business in dollars. On the leadership front, 
We entered week two of the smear campaign against U.S. Representative Jim Jordan, one of the founders and the first chairman of the House Freedom Caucus. You'll recall that a week and a half ago, three former state Ohio State University wrestlers charged Jordan with knowing about sexual abuse at the hands of the team doctor, but doing nothing about it while he was the assistant wrestling coach there. The good news is we have yet to see a call from a single Republican member of Congress for Jordan to step down. The better news is everyone in a leadership position in the GOP, from the president to the speaker of the House, to the House Majority Leader, to the House Majority Whip, has issued a statement of support for Jordan, vouching for his reputation for honor and integrity, and saying they believe his declaration that he knew nothing about alleged sexual abuse of his athletes at Ohio State University. In addition, on Tuesday of last week, 15 former Ohio State wrestlers signed a joint statement backing up Congressman Jordan's contention that he knew nothing of the alleged abuse. And perhaps more importantly, E. Gordon Gee, the former president of The Ohio State University, during the time the sexual abuse is alleged to have occurred, says no one ever told him anything negative about the team doctor. His account is backed up by Linda Tom, who served as vice president for human resources at The Ohio State University from 1992 to 1997. She would have been the appropriate university official to receive any such complaints, and she says no one ever told her anything about the allegedly abusive doctor either. On the NATO front, President Trump traveled to Brussels last week for a NATO summit and did what previous American presidents had failed to do, make the case publicly that NATO members have been free riding on the backs of the American taxpayer for too long, and that was going to have to change. Christiane Amanpour, she's the accented version of Rachel Maddow, looked like her head was going to explode when she interviewed the NATO Secretary General on CNN. Calling out allied foreign leaders for their failure to live up to their commitments simply is not done, at least not in her world. American taxpayers have footed the bill for decades for NATO, and President Trump has decided the free ride is going to stop one way or the other. Either the NATO members are going to pony up and help pay for their own defense appropriately, or changes will be made. To put this in context, when President Trump was what President Trump was demanding publicly is no less than what President Obama and President Bush before him asked for privately. NATO member countries, of which there are now 29, agreed in the wake of Russia's 2014 annexation of Crimea to devote 2% of their gross domestic product to defense spending. The United States spent 3.6% of its GDP on defense last year, and only four other NATO countries even broke the 2% threshold. The NATO average is just 1.45%. So the president called them out for not living up to their commitments and then raised the bar even further, suggesting they should all go to 4% of GDP as the target. It's doubtful he was serious. It's more likely he was using the 4% figure as a negotiating tactic. On the Russia front, the president met for more than two hours with Russian dictator Vladimir Putin earlier today in Helsinki and held a joint press conference with Putin afterwards. Answering a question about whether he believes the U.S. intelligence community that Russia actively interfered with our 2016 election or President Putin, who denied any Russian interference, President Trump said, quote, I don't see any reason why it would be Russia. I really want to see the server referring to the DNC server that was allegedly hacked by Russian intelligence operatives, but which the FBI never took possession of in its initial investigation. Then he continued, quote, President Putin was extremely strong in his denial, unquote. For his part, Putin said, quote, the Russian state has never interfered and is not going to interfere into internal American affairs, including the election process. He then went on to say, quote, 
Could you name a single fact that would definitively prove the collusion? This is utter nonsense, just like the president mentioned, end quote. Putin did offer to have Russian authorities interrogate the 12 Russian intelligence officers indicted by special counsel Mueller and even indicated he would allow Mueller to send representatives to witness the interrogations. On the Russia probe last Friday, special counsel Robert Mueller indicted 12 Russian intelligence operatives, charging them with hacking the computers of the Democratic National Committee, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, and the Hillary Clinton for President campaign in 2016. The indictments were announced by Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, who also informed reporters that he had briefed President Trump on the upcoming indictments earlier in the week. The indictments do not charge any U.S. citizen with a crime and do not suggest that, quote, the conspiracy changed the vote count or affected any election result, end quote. I've included several relevant articles in the suggested reading for those who would like to read more. Now to the Supreme Court. Last Monday evening, President Trump announced his choice for the second Supreme Court vacancy of his presidency, Brett M. Kavanaugh, who has served on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals for 12 years. Kavanaugh's academic credentials are superb, cum laude at Yale as an undergraduate, then Yale Law School, where he helped edit the law review. Since then, he has clerked for three federal judges, two judges for Circuit Courts of Appeal, and one justice of the Supreme Court. He worked with Ken Starr on the Whitewater investigation, then spent three years in the White House Counsel's Office under President George W. Bush, and then spent two years as Staff Secretary to President Bush. When he was first nominated to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals in 2003, Senate Democrats knew already he was a potential Supreme Court pick, and they did what they could to block him. Back then, confirming a judge required meeting the 60-vote threshold, so Democrats were able to block him. They kept him off the court for three years before finally cutting a deal and allowing him to be confirmed to his current position in 2006. Since then, he's written more than 300 opinions and dissents. In addition, he's got a paper trail said to number in the multiple millions. They include documents from his time in the Whitewater Special Counsel's Office, his time in the White, the White House Counsel's Office, and his time as Staff Secretary at the White House. Senate Democrats can be expected to do their best to delay the confirmation process by claiming they haven't been given enough time to research his document trail, but that's not going to matter to Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. McConnell has already indicated he expects to get to confirmation hearings after Labor Day, with an expected confirmation vote in mid to late September, so that the newly confirmed Justice Kavanaugh can be seated in time for the Supreme Court's first session in early October. Brett Kavanaugh was not our first choice, but as we always do on topics of such gravity, we surveyed our members last week and found they supported the Kavanaugh nomination. In addition, Kavanaugh's nomination has found generally wide support among conservatives, but not all conservatives support the Kavanaugh nomination. However, those who oppose him refer to a general fear that given his upbringing inside the Washington Beltway, he may be too fearful of upsetting elitist apple carts and may shy away from the kind of truly conservative rulings we hope for. More specifically, some are concerned about his opinion in a case called Seven Sky v. Holder, an Obamacare case that some are suggesting laid the groundwork for Chief Justice John Roberts' later holding in NFIB v. Sebelius, enshrining the individual mandate as nothing more than a perfectly constitutional tax penalty. That is, some conservatives blame Kavanaugh for showing the chief justice how he could save Obamacare by calling the individual mandate a tax. Here's what the Washington examiner's Philip Klein had to say about Kavanaugh's opinion in Seven Sky. Quote, 
In the Seven Sky v. Holder case, a forerunner to the landmark Supreme Court ruling, a three-judge panel decided two to one that Obamacare's individual mandate was constitutional. While Kavanaugh dissented from the main opinion, he did not go as far as declaring Obamacare unconstitutional. Instead, he argued that the court was not yet in a position to hear the case because under an arcane 19th century law known as the Tax Anti-Injunction Act, courts could not hear challenges to a tax that had not yet been collected. And thus, any decision would have to wait until 2015 when taxpayers had to file mandate penalties for the first time. In summary, Kavanaugh didn't uphold Obamacare, but he did not take the opportunity to strike it down either. Where things get more complicated is that as part of his legal analysis, he alluded to the fact that with a small tweak of language, the law could be seen as a constitutional exercise of Congress's taxing power. As Josh Blackman, who chronicled the case in his book, Unprecedented, notes, Obama Solicitor General Donald Verrilli cited this Kavanaugh point in his brief to the U.S. Supreme Court. This forms the basis of critic Chris Jacobs' assertion that Kavanaugh's opinion provided the roadmap for Roberts to uphold Obamacare as a tax. On the other hand, Kavanaugh's suggested change to Obamacare could also be seen as an acknowledgement that it was not constitutional as written. Furthermore, elsewhere in his opinion, Kavanaugh also expressed skepticism that the Commerce Clause allowed for the mandate, quote, to uphold the Affordable Care Act's mandatory purchase requirement under the Commerce Clause, we would have to uphold a law that is unprecedented on the federal level in American history, Kavanaugh wrote. That fact alone counsels the judiciary to exercise great caution. Kavanaugh went on to call the implications of punishing those without health insurance jarring. Law professor Justin Walker, who clerked for Kavanaugh as well as Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy during the time the Obamacare case was decided, has argued that Kavanaugh's critical Commerce Clause analysis was more influential at the Supreme Court level than his tax analysis. Quote, I can tell you with certainty that the only justices following a roadmap from Brett Kavanaugh were the ones who said Obamacare was unconstitutional, he wrote. The argument over Kavanaugh's Obamacare opinion is likely to play a central role in the debate over his jurisprudence in the months ahead, particularly as another case challenging the law makes its way through the courts. But it's worth cautioning that how Kavanaugh ruled at the appellate court level may not be an indication of how he would have ruled were he on the Supreme Court in 2012. To start, there was already a clear majority of justices who ruled that the Anti-Injunction Act did not bar them from deciding the case. So either way, the court was going to get to the merits. That could have forced a hypothetical Justice Kavanaugh to make a different decision. And given his skepticism about the Commerce Clause argument and his hint that a tweak to Obamacare would be needed to make it a constitutional exercise of taxing power, it's quite possible he would have been a vote to overturn the law. So, to sum up, viewed from a conservative perspective, it would have been more reassuring had Kavanaugh voted to strike down the law, but on the other hand, the nuance of his opinion contains some positive signs and makes any sort of firm conclusions hard to draw. Thus, it seems that the decision is a reason for concern, but nowhere near a justification for panic." Quote. I think that's a fair reading of Kavanaugh on Obamacare. Other conservatives are concerned about Kavanaugh's ruling on a recent case called Garza v. Hargan, in which a 17-year-old pregnant illegal immigrant who had been detained by federal authorities sought an abortion. The D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals eventually ruled that the girl could obtain the abortion. 
Kavanaugh dissented. That is, he voted against allowing her to obtain the abortion, but his reasoning was criticized by some conservatives for not being as expansive as it could have been. Now to the confirmation fight. Republicans have an effective 50 to 49 majority with Senator McCain still not casting votes. So if every Republican senator votes to confirm Kavanaugh, he's in and there's nothing the Democrats can do to stop it. But are all Republican senators on board? In addition to the usual suspects, Senator Susan Collins of Maine and Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, we have to add Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky, who may have concerns over Kavanaugh's views on government collection of data. On the Democratic side of the aisle, Senators Joe Manchin of West Virginia, Joe Donnelly of Indiana, and Heidi Heitkamp of North Dakota have already indicated a wait-and-see attitude. They all voted to confirm Neil Gorsuch, and they'll be under heavy pressure from their opponents to vote to confirm Kavanaugh. In addition, Senators Claire McCaskill of Missouri, John Tester of Montana, and Bill Nelson of Florida are also going to come under heavy pressure. On the social media bias front, the House Judiciary Committee will hold a hearing tomorrow to examine the social media filtering practices employed by some of the largest social media outlets in the world, including Facebook, Twitter, and Alphabet, the parent company of Google and YouTube. I wouldn't be at all surprised to see that hearing generate charges and examples of social media bias against conservatives. On the staffing front, White House Legislative Director Legislative Affairs Director Mark Short has announced his intent to depart the White House for good next week. He'll be joining a consulting firm and taking a position teaching in the business school at the University of Virginia and taking position at the university's Center for Politics. Shire Knight of the National Economic Council staff will replace him as the Legislative Affairs Director. She played a major role in pushing the Tax Cut and Jobs Act through Congress last fall. Finally, on the taxes front, You'll recall that a few months ago we asked on our Sunday night national leadership call whether or not we should support an effort to have the Treasury Department issue a new definition of cost vis-a-vis capital gains that would essentially allow for the indexing of capital gains to inflation. That is, capital gains would no longer be computed by subtracting the original nominal selling price from the later selling price to determine the gain, but would instead be calculated by using the inflation-adjusted cost. That would essentially remove the so-called inflation tax from the equation and result in a much fairer rendering of capital gains. We agreed that this made sense and we agreed to support this effort. The Wall Street Journal's Kimberly Strassel wrote her column last week on the subject and pointed out that the effort is gaining steam. Stay tuned. This could be a huge tax cut delivered without congressional delay. And that's our Washington Report for this week.